Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Okay, ED ECMO, this is Zach Shiner, and it is September 2019. We are just a couple days, I mean like 10 days away from Reanimate 7. It is sold out. It is going to be a fantastic event here in San Diego for all of you that are coming. Uh, we can't wait to see you. We've got people from all over the world, Saudi Arabia, Costa Rica, um, tons of different places for coming over to Reanimate 7. We've got great faculty. Phil Mason is coming. Uh, Janelle Badulak is back. Jim Manning and Zaff and Scott Weingart and Amy Hackman, all the usual crew. It's going to be another unbelievable event. Uh, we hope to see you in a couple of days. But today, I want to revisit something that we've talked about on EDECMO a number of times before, and that is Reboa. And we've had uh, previous people where we've talked about sort of how do you do this best? What are the types of patients that you get into? And and even one time we did talk a little bit about partial Reboa. And today I've got with me Matt Martin. Matt, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Zach. So Matt is, uh, well, he's a very accomplished researcher, and he's recently been involved with a paper that I found absolutely fantastic, and I wanted to get him on the show and pick his brain not only about that paper, but just about Reboa in general. So Matt, I really appreciate you giving us your time today. Yeah, happy to be here. So Matt, just as, a, as kind of a precursor, tell us, tell us your background. What are you involved in? So uh, I was a, an Army trauma surgeon, uh, served 24 years. Uh, most of my time was at Madigan Army Medical Center, uh, where I was the trauma director. And uh, we also started a trauma research lab uh, that has been uh, reasonably productive. I uh, had a, you know, multiple combat deployments over that time, uh, five total uh, to both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and then I just retired from the Army uh, this past year, and in October, uh, made the jump to civilian life, and I'm now a trauma surgeon at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego. Just down the street from us. So Matt That's right, has, we're neighbors. has joined the San Diego crew. How, how can you blame us, even though today it's, it's going to hit almost 90 degrees here in San Diego? Cooler than Kuwait. It's cool. Ah, that's uh, it's all about comparison. <laughs> so, Matt, let's talk about this uh, in Reboa. It's I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the recent literature has sort of said, hey, maybe either partial or intermittent Reboa is advantageous over just con- putting the balloon up and leaving it blown up. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I say in, in ge- well, I'd say first off, we we have really no human data saying any of those approaches is better than the other. Uh, but, but I'd say the strong data we have is that the amount of time that the balloon is up, especially for a zone one Reboa, uh, correlates with outcomes. And the longer the balloon is up, the worse your outcomes are. So for short balloon times, uh, I don't think it will matter a whole lot. And, and by that, I mean like 15 minutes or less. But once you start to get beyond that, that's where you know we see the major ischemia reperfusion consequences, and and that's where we really are starting to look at intermittent and and partial Reboa techniques. Yeah, and so so when we start comparing intermittent versus partial, I think we can maybe get into this a little bit. But do you have a preference? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to define those because uh, I think a lot of people confuse them or, or just don't understand the difference. And and the way I describe it is uh, for partial Reboa, 
Uh, actually, when I, I give a talk, I have a slide that shows the, uh, the scene from Spinal Tap where he's talking about he can turn his amp up to 11 because it goes one higher than 10. So, so partial Reboa is you're trying to dial in specific levels of flow by inflating or deflating the balloon. So you're trying to do controlled partial reperfusion. And intermittent is, the, the analogy I use there is from Karate Kid, it's wax on, wax off. Intermittent is the balloon is up or the balloon is down. And what you're doing is you're doing a time with the balloon up and then you're taking the balloon down and allowing reperfusion. And then if needed, you're putting the balloon back up again. And, and, and those are two very different approaches. Um, personally, which, which would be preferable uh I, I would say partial roboa is probably more the future uh, of where this is going uh but there's a lot of unanswered questions about when do you restore flow how much flow do you need to restore and and obviously in both of those techniques you're trying to balance risk of re-bleeding versus potential benefits of reperfusing the torso Okay, and so that's that's what this whole talk is about, is that balance between the ischemia of the lower body and the hemorrhagic shock that's causing. Now, when you say re-bleeding, because this is, a, I, when I was reading your paper, it's, it is, I think, a, an interesting part. So I'm imagining someone who gets their, their liver, you know, shot to death or some, some terrible thing that's going on in their abdomen or even their lower extremity. They are actively bleeding. You put up a catheter into their proximal aorta and you blow up a balloon and now you've got it occluded. And so part of the premise here is right that the first few minutes, however, you said 15 minutes and uh, I'd like to get your opinion on that. How many minutes do we want to leave it up for continuous occlusion? Well, uh, well, it depends what your goal is. And, and in many of these cases, putting that balloon up uh, even though there still be will still be maybe some flow and some venous return, in in many cases, just decreasing that flow is enough to let the body form clot and the bleeding stops. And and what's the magic number? Uh, I I can't tell you exactly Fr from our studies, and we've done we've done now multiple intermittent and a couple partial Reboa. Uh, if you take it down any less than 10 minutes, we send, tend to see a lot of rebleeding. So, so my bias would be you want to leave it up for at least 10 minutes, uh, and that 10 to 15 minute balloon up time is is seems to be about the right time if you're going to try partial or intermittent roboa. Okay, so for all the listeners, we are not talking about starting out as partial roboa. We're starting out as complete occlusion for 10 to 15 minutes. Correct? Yes. Yeah, and and I'd say you're always. You're always starting with complete occlusion. Okay. Uh, it, it, you know, if they have an indication for a Reboa, <laughs> that usually means they're unstable or they have signs of major ongoing hemorrhage that you need to buy some time. So I'd say you know, in those situations, it's always you want to put the balloon up, get control of the situation, and then decide, you know, can I start to try and restore uh, some perfusion. Okay. And then we're hoping in that time frame that we will have some – cessation of bleeding, that whatever is injured will have at least improved um, the flow or the amount of bleeding that is going on. Yes, and, and you've augmented central perfusion, so, so we, we often don't talk about that part. Um, so even if you haven't necessarily stopped the bleeding below the balloon, you have augmented central perfusion above the balloon, and, and, and that carries a survival benefit as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. But what I'm imagining is us going to the operating room as quickly as possible. We're going to try and, and 
and fix whatever injury we've got or get tourniquets on whatever we've got. Um, if we've got a, if we're in the OR and we let down the balloon, I'm imagining this thing is going to start bleeding again. But at some at, at some percentage of this time, you're saying that no, the Reboa by itself uh, occludes the or stops the bleeding. Oh yeah, yeah, and we've we've seen that you know many times of you, you put the balloon up and you'll come down on the balloon and the patient's hemodynamics will be fine and you know you get into the abdomen and they have you know a, a say a solid organ injury a, a spleen that's formed clot and it's relatively hemostatic uh, so so a certain percentage of those you know just doing the reboa gets you hemostasis uh, and then but then many others and and I'd say bad liver injuries are probably that example because of the the triple blood flow to the liver. Uh, usually, if you have a major hepatic injury, when you come down on the balloon, it will start to rebleed. Okay. Okay. So let, now we're getting into kind of the phase of now, how do we do this best? So we've got the balloon up 10 minutes, 15 minutes. We're taking them to wherever they need to go to try and get definitive therapy. But now we're at the point where maybe we can let this balloon down a little bit. And the question is, how much do we let it down? Yeah, and, and that I think it's it's important to note that the current commercially available devices, and, and mainly I'd say most people are using the, the 7 French ER Reboa catheter, uh, those are not designed for partial Reboa. And, and even though people talk about restoring partial flow and, and I'm going to come down slowly on the balloon, uh, if you look at the data on them, you cannot – do anything approaching fine control of flow with the currently available balloons because what happens is you know and and the aorta isn't a rigid tube right it's elastic and it also has some contractile elements as when the balloon is fully up and you get full apposition it will stop flow and then as you start coming down on the balloon uh, when you lose apposition to the aortic wall you'll start to get a trickle of flow but then you very rapidly go from trickle to full flow there isn't that middle zone where you can, you know, if you take down a CC at a time, you're going to get stepwise increases in flow. It's you go from a trickle flow to full flow as soon as both sides of that balloon lose apposition. Uh, and, and that's why one of the current focuses of of uh, the Reboa, several of the Reboa companies are, are developing balloons where you can do fine control. And, and actually the paper we're talking about, our paper was with one of those prototype balloons that they've designed that will allow you to do fine control uh, of restoring partial flow. Um, so, so people who currently talk about doing partial, they're, they're not really doing partial. Uh, and, and I think the other point that's important to emphasize is, is they'll, they'll correlate a distal pressure. So they'll transduce a pressure from the side port of the sheath or from the other groin. And then, and they'll base their estimate of partial flow off of that. And and when you get to that point after you've occluded and reperfused, the distal pressure does not equal flow. It, it's like any other system where pressure does not equal flow, right? There's a whole lot of other other factors because you get peripheral vasodilation and hyperemia when you reperfuse. So even though you, even though your distal pressure might be low, you know you might have a distal map of 30 or 40, you will be at full flow. It's just because you've lost vascular resistance in that bed. And so I think those are important concepts to understand. So good. 
So good. So yeah, I want to get into how that catheter looks in just a second, um, and especially talking about the pressure flow relationship. You had some graphs in your in your paper about that as well. But we talked about, and I think maybe this leads into this, what you just said, is that on, previously on this podcast, we talked about that whole windsocking event where you take the balloon down a little bit, and yeah, you you maybe... So you're saying as, as soon as you don't have apposition of the of the of the balloon, you have greatly increased flows, regardless of what kind of volume is left within the balloon. Yeah, you know, you you you'll go from you know ten percent flow to ninety percent flow over a very small increment, and you don't have anything near the ability to control that. Uh, and actually, the group out of uh, UC Davis mm-hmm. uh, and Travis Grant uh, Air Force Base did also did a nice study on this, just looking at how. Uh, that distal pressure does not correlate with flow and, and how you really can't control partial flow with the, the commercially available Roboa devices. So, okay, so in the current setup with our Pritime ER Roboa catheter, is there any reliable way for us to do partial Roboa in a, a live patient in 2019? N- not, not if you mean trying to dial in, you know, a specific mid-range flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what you can do is is you you always want to slowly come down on the balloon, uh, and you will start to restore a very low amount of flow, uh, and that's probably what you want to do first as you resuscitate the patient. But just realizing, you know, the, the next CC or two you take out, you're going to be back to nearly full flow, e- even though your distal pressure might be low. Hmm. So we should not we should not rely on our distal pressure at all. We need to be just thinking about cc's of volume in there or how, how can i how can i at least do some sort of partial boa in you know without the technologies of the new catheter uh, well really you can't mm-hmm. you know uh, other than un- unless you know you're realizing you're doing that binary extremely low flow which at least from our data uh, shows it doesn't have a real benefit it, you know because you're what you're trying to do with partial is give some degree of flow that's enough to avoid some of the ischemia and reperfusion, mm-hmm. right? To, to give the trunk and the extremities, a, you know, a quote-unquote drink. Uh, and at least what our data has shown where we actually looked at flow, that very low level of flow, that's not enough to avoid, you know, the usual consequences of ischemia reperfusion. So, so as long as you realize that, you know, if, if you're quote-unquote doing partial, you, you know, you're restoring a trickle flow uh, and then you're going to nearly full flow. Which, which I think is, is okay because you want to slowly come off on that balloon and start that reperfusion and then have, let anesthesia catch up. Uh, but the other part is you always, you always have to be ready to go up, back up on the balloon. And, and that is a relatively common phenomenon, right? We come down on the balloon, even if we do it slowly, and the patient tanks their pressures, and then we have to go back up on the balloon. And so sometimes it takes two or three cycles of that slow deflation to get the patient completely off of the balloon. Hmm. So those of us that are thinking that we're doing partial Reboa today, we're really just doing intermittent Reboa. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you're you're most likely doing intermittent Reboa, and and you really have no good sense of how much flow you're establishing. You know, when when you are attempting to do partial. Okay, so let's get into that new catheter. So I saw in that paper, I think it looked like it was pretty good relationship. Like fifth, I think you said fifth. If you decrease the balloon half volume, you get fifty six percent of of the flow. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so this balloon system did allow very fine control of flow, <clears throat> and and it gives you a nice correlation. 
it gives you a nice correlation with balloon volumes and flow. So you can, you know, incrementally deflate the balloon and you'll get stepwise increases in flow. Uh, it also seemed to establish a better relationship between the distal pressure and the actual flow. And, and I think that's, again, because you're gradually restoring perfusion. You're not suddenly opening up to full reperfusion where you then get massive vasodilation. Uh, it, the one the one caveat is uh, this particular device that we used uh, did do excellent uh, partial reperfusion. Uh, however, when they when they tested it in some larger aortas, which would cor- correlate to you know generally a larger adult human, uh, it did not uh, function as well hmm. uh, because it just it just wasn't large enough to get complete apposition. Uh, for the initial uh, cessation of flow and then to do a fine control. So so that company, and I know several others, have developed several other prototypes uh, that are designed for larger aortas. And, and our lab is actually uh, about to start testing one of those prototypes. So, so that exact device we tested, while it worked great for smaller aortas, uh, they did find that it, it wasn't suited for larger aortas. And so they've, they've dev- designed several uh newer versions of a partial Roboa catheter. Mm. Yeah, so didn't think about that. Yeah, the pigs aren't aren't always exactly like the humans, huh? Yeah, and and and, and that's the other thing you have to look at, you know, what size pig was used yeah. and, and yeah. uh, you know, the the other part is when you have a if you do your studies in healthy anesthetized pigs where you don't bleed them or put them in shock, you'll tend to get very different results because when they're hypovolemic and in shock, the aorta contracts, uh, and it also it also develops just a lot of uh, vasospasm, uh, and, y- and you can even watch this as you reperfuse. So so you'll start coming down in the balloon and thinking you know you're losing apposition, uh, and the aorta will you know collapse and contract with the balloon. So mm-hmm. so there's a different relationship between balloon volumes uh, and flow in the hypotensive shock patient versus the healthy anesthetized animal. And mm. I think that's important to understand when you're looking at some of these studies. Yeah, because yeah, that first experiment, right, they weren't, they weren't bled. They, when you were getting the linear flows, that was with them not being bled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that was our first goal was just to see, okay, does this thing work yeah. you know, outside of injury and shock? Um, we, we did find that it still worked as well for controlling flow, Mm-hmm. Uh, in the shock state, it's just you, it, it shifts the volume, the balloon volume curve to lower balloon volumes because the aorta is smaller. Okay, all right. So we've got that. You uh, kind of stepping into the second major finding that you had. You had you had some relationship of like what was the ideal amount of flow, and I think you found sort of the middle ground was was a good place. Yeah, and that, that's obviously kind of the holy grail of partial Roboa is where's that flow level? Yeah. Uh, that flow level that, that gives you enough flow that you perfuse the organs and avoid some of the ischemia reperfusion consequences, but it doesn't make the injury re-bleed. And, and not unexpectedly, we, we looked at various levels of flow and we found a very low flow was great for controlling the bleeding, but it didn't help with the ischemia reperfusion and higher flows – uh, on, on order of about 0.7 to 1 liter a minute uh, did help with the ischemia reperfusion, but they caused rebleeding. Uh, and so we found kind of a middle ground flow uh, seemed to be the best. Uh, again, in in this 
in this porcine model, <laughs> which I'll emphasize. Uh, you know, whether that translates to humans 100%, you know, that we don't know. Uh, but, but I suspect the principle will, but the exact flow rates might be a little different for humans in terms of what flow do you need, you know, to perfuse the critical organs. And, and probably with zone one Reboa, if we're talking about what are the real important organs that we want to perfuse and avoid ischemia reperfusion, we're probably talking about the bowel and the liver. I think those are usually our two drivers of the post-resuscitation shock from ischemia and reperfusion. Yeah. And you, you commented on uh, the same things that we've kind of looked at as well in the past is that, that hypocalcemia and hyperkalemia, these are, the, these are the factors that also play into the, how well the pigs end up surviving in the end. Yeah, and, and actually that was another interesting finding. Uh, and, and actually, this is this is why it's great to have, you know, research residents who are inquisitive and teach you things. Um, this is actually something our, our research residents really began to notice is th- these animals all get hyperkalemic and the human data shows the same thing. You know, there's a high incidence of hyperkalemia, especially, you know, with longer balloon times. And, and we've always assumed that the the hypotension or even the, the cardiac arrest that you sometimes get when you come down on the balloon or reperfuse was just due to hyperkalemia. Uh, and what we actually found is that they would all get hyperkalemic, but they would split into the animals that would live and would die. And, and the factor that was associated with the ones that lived was that their calcium remained in the normal range. And, and what we found is every time when the calcium level got low in the setting of hyperkalemia, that's when they would arrest. Uh, and so we started being pretty aggressive about giving them calcium supplementation, uh, mm. and and we found that markedly decreased that incidence of the post reperfusion severe hypotension or arrest, and and so, so like you know if, if I'm doing a robot and a human before we come down on the balloon, I'll I'll just have them you know empirically give a couple amps of bicarb and a couple amps of calcium, uh, along with volume loading before we come down on the balloon, so so I'd say the message is pay attention to the calcium. Uh, and, and as long as you're maintaining a high calcium level, the hyperkalemia will be relatively well tolerated. Hmm. Yeah, well, what, some of the things I find so fascinating about this is that, you know, we deal a lot with cardiac arrest in this podcast, uh, with ECMO as well. And, um, and it's sort of like, what is going on with that heart? And so you, you look at uh, when we're throwing flows back up the retrograde up the aorta and we're pushing on the the giving afterload to the heart or increasing the pressure of the aorta like those are, are questions and then we i think there's been a couple of studies that have come out just recently as well looking at reboa and how even just having the balloon up can cause some cardiovascular injury uh, you look at it in combination with calcium and, and potassium and there's just a very interesting milieu going on right around the heart when you have when we do all these interventions to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a paper that I think is out now in EPUB ahead of print journal of trauma looking at exactly that. And they showed, you know, a significant, significant incidence of myocardial injury with the balloon up. Yeah. Um, a, a, an additional caveat to that, though, is pigs tend to have much more sensitive hearts uh, that they go into arrhythmias and, and fatal cardiac events. They seem to at least much more easily than humans. So, so again, that's one where I'd, I'd have a little bit of a caveat that, you know, okay, th- this is in the porcine models. Mm-hmm. Does that directly translate? 
but the the pigs <laughs> the pigs will be very cardiac sensitive, and if you're not careful of that, you you lose a lot of animals, you know, before the end of your experiment, right. which is of course frustrating. Sure, and I think in that paper you just mentioned like having the variable control, the one where you did intermittent, that uh, that the myocardium actually did quite a bit better. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, kind of taking this back uh, to today, uh, we've got the patient in front of us. We've got to make some decisions. We ideally would want to know what the flow is below. Even with the new catheter, we're never going to really know the flow below. Is that correct in a, in a patient? Well, with, with the current devices, yes. Uh, I would say, though, we're not we're not too far off to where we should have catheters that'll that'll actually give you flow, which will which will be the more important measure. Uh, and there's you know there's several companies uh, that are already working on on this and similar devices. So so I, I would I, I would not say that we're never going to have that. Um, you know it, it's it's not that hard to put a small uh, flow sensor uh, into a catheter. Uh, and, and again, I would say that's you know if. If I think Reboa is going to survive in the future Reboa, I, I think it's going to be a, a partial catheter where you can control aortic flow, uh, and, and that obviously that will have to give you some measure of your flow. Uh, until then, that, that's one of the reasons our lab and others are doing these studies of, of building these balloon volume versus flow charts. So you know at least you can reasonably use a proxy of balloon volume to estimate what kind of flow you're establishing. Mm. Yeah, that would be nice that if you could just use, I mean, it would be great if we had a flow monitor for sure. Uh, so in putting that into the catheter, that would be ideal. Uh, until then, we've now got this question. What do we do? Now, even in a, we don't even have the new catheter. So in our current state, I know there's also been a recent paper that came out kind of looking at whether with what we have right now, do I use a time sensitive thing or do I use a pressure sensitive thing? I can transduce the pressure below. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in that study, I believe the um, the time sensitive thing, the patients actually did survived more at least. Uh, and if you did the pressure limited one, then you had this drop off and, and like half of them died, right? I've sure you did that. What's your opinion in 2019 with what we have? Do I use a time sensitive thing or do I use a pressure and and that's a that's a that's a tough question to answer. Okay. Uh, and and I'll say those those papers actually came out of our lab also. Oh. Uh, and so so we looked at the intermittent versus so the pressure based or time based. Uh, the other the other factor I think is important to emphasize is you, you have to you have to be able to apply this to different types of injuries that we might see. So, so if we talk about non-compressible truncal hemorrhage in the abdomen, you know, w- what is going to be the source? And, and it's either going to be a solid organ injury, a vascular injury, or a bad pelvic fracture with hemorrhage. I mean, those are the big three. Uh, and what are, what are the most common? So probably the most common are going to be the solid organ injuries and then the major pelvic fractures and the vascular injuries, you know, relatively less common. If you look at most of the data, the, especially the animal models, most of them have used a vascular injury, an isolated major vascular injury. Uh, 
Uh, and so one of the things that, that our studies and others found was uh, the vascular injuries are actually the easiest to control and get good results with the Reboa. Um, you know, in general, you put it up, the vessel will clot or seal, uh, and you can reperfuse, and oftentimes you won't get any re- uh, Where we find a lot more variation in terms of you start to take the balloon down and you get rebleeding is with solid organ injuries. Uh, and and so, so our lab studied that question in, in both models, a vascular injury model and a solid organ injury model. Uh, and, and, and we actually got different results. Uh, in one, the pressure-based approach to intermittent was better. In the other, the time-based approach was better, and, and that was in the solid organ injury model. Uh, in both studies, though, the, they, they were both effective and they were both better to nothing or complete Roboa. Um, you know, I, I think the question becomes which one is, is simpler and easier to use uh, and also how closely you're able to monitor and respond. So, so for now, uh, I, I would say a, a time-based strategy is probably the simplest. Uh, and, and, you know, we just we would just do 10 to 15 minutes of balloon up and then you could do uh, three minute cycles of balloon down and then and then balloon up. Uh, others have used a, and are using a pressure based approach. So you take the balloon down and as long as your map stays OK, you don't need to go back up on the balloon. Uh, what would the one caveat to that is you have to be really closely monitoring that. Because what we found in our solid organ injury study when we tried that pressure-based approach was, you know, we would wait until the map dropped and then go back up on the balloon. But we would get a lot of bleeding uh, before we were able to respond to put the balloon back up. And then that's why they had worse outcomes with that approach. So, so I always say that as a caveat. When people talk about, well, I'll just take the balloon down and, and if their map drops, you know, then I'll go back up on the balloon and, and, and okay, but you just need to be really watching that. And as soon as the map starts to drop or, or any signs that there's bleeding, you got to go back up on the balloon. Uh, so, so our pressure-based protocol might have just been uh, a little too loose uh, in terms of allowing the map to drop further than we should have. So, so for right now, I would say the, the time-based approach I would say either is reasonable, but if you're doing the pressure based, you, you need to have you need to be dedicated to watching that very closely and ready to go back up on the balloon. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good stuff, Dr. Martin. I really appreciate it. Uh, one last little thing here is you know uh, Jim Manning is a good friend of ours. He'll be here in a couple of weeks, and he actually just published his SAP uh, got in Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery as well. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? The idea of putting a balloon up into the proximal aorta and then through the tip of the catheter, uh, instilling some some oxygen carrying capacity, either Hembach or some uh, fresh whole blood. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's another that's another future of where this technology is going. The the selective aortic arch perfusion. Uh, I think even combining that with some distal perfusion. Uh, and with some kind of oxygenated carrier, if, if you don't have blood, um, I, again, I think that that and the partial Reboa where you're able to control flow, the, those are the futures of where this technology is going. Uh, the the selective perfusion, uh, though, you know that that does require you know some significant equipment and supplies. Uh, so so I think that's a little harder if we're if we're getting into talking about pushing this out 
you know, further forward in the military setting or pre-hospital in the civilian setting. Uh, but, but yeah, actually, I, I, I saw their paper and, and the work that they've done. Uh, there's been several other groups that have looked at this, and, and not just for trauma, right? You know, right. As I'm sure you're aware, mm-hmm. you know, for, for various causes of bleeding, for uh, cardiac arrest, for myocardial infarction. Uh, and I think the data, at least the animal and preclinical data, is really promising. And, and I think they've clearly shown doing that is superior to just putting the balloon up. Mm-hmm. And without any other therapy. Yeah, so I did. I have done pig trials with Jim uh, on a cardiac arrest model, non-traumatic model, and it's it's pretty cool to see the catheter close the aortic valve, you know, perfuse the coronaries, and then get some ROSC. So, uh, yeah, all good stuff. Future of traumatic injuries, cardiac injuries. The the, the interplay is is extensive. Oh yeah, G, GI bleeds. Yeah. You know, o- o- OB-GYN yeah. is, is a big growing field of Reboa for high-risk, uh, you know, placental abnormalities. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else, Dr. Martin, uh, to, to, you'd like to share? Uh, no, I, I, I think that covers it. So, uh, you know, again, uh, a, a lot of work to do on this, but, but I, but I think the current attention to really trying to minimize that time with the balloon up uh, is is a good thing, and and I think if you look at some of the bad results with early Reboa studies, you know, that was because there was a little less attention to the balloon time, uh, and and just people understanding that you know it, it's not a it's not a treatment modality, it's a bridge, and and as soon as that balloon is going up, you know the clock is ticking, and you need to be deciding where I'm going, and and that usually is almost always going to be OR or angio. Uh, to get the hemorrhage controlled and get that balloon down. Awesome. Let me just see if I can summarize a little bit of what we talked about. So I I would say for the listeners, main take home, first of all, complete a balloon occlusion for 10 to 15 minutes. After that, probably what we're going to be doing is intermittent until we get some of these new catheters. And that intermittent occlusion, you can do it based on time, which would be you know, a specific set of time, or on pressure. But some of the data, and, and as Dr. Martin alluded to, is conflicting. Maybe even a time-sensitive one is, is just easier. Uh, and then follow-up, we have future is potentially putting catheters up that can actually instill uh, oxygen-carrying capacity and occlude the aorta at the same time. Dr. Martin, yeah. I super appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. It's, it was great. All right, great talking to you, Zach.